listening to KHOL. This is Jackson Unpacked, our weekly podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. I'm news director Kyle Mackey. Coming up on today's show, a conversation with Jackson comedian and Pride JH organizer, Andrew Mutz. I, you know, found my footing growing up gay in this place and uh, and I became very much an observer. And so when I saw that people treated my hometown as that place that everybody flocked to, I just found it so amusing. Plus, the final episode of KHOL's special limited podcast series, Facets, shares stories of immigration to Jackson Hole. But first, a look at the latest development in the local controversy over scenic air tours near Grand Teton National Park. Wind River Air, LLC, the only local operator of scenic helicopter flights, decided not to renew its permit with the Jackson Hole Airport when it expired at the end of April. However, that doesn't mean the end of scenic flights, as some in the community would like. KHOL's Kyle Mackey reports on what happens next. Executive Director of the Jackson Hole Airport, Jim Elwood, didn't waste any time at the start of an April 20th airport board meeting to break the news. Wind River Air would not be renewing its license agreement with the airport. He was also clear about what exactly that means. I think it's really important for all those that are interested in this subject to recognize that Wind River Air can continue to operate as a transient operation here at the airport and can pick up and drop off passengers. They just can't promote it as being to the extent they currently are on their website and other places. Basically, Wind River Air can't say its operation is based at the Jackson Hole Airport. The company also appears to have removed some pictures of its red helicopter on the airport tarmac from its website. In return, Wind River Air no longer has to submit a monthly report to the airport detailing the dates and times of its scenic flights. Asked whether that puts the board in a worse position than before in terms of monitoring the company's activities, Elwood didn't mince words. In my opinion, yes, because we were able to gather additional detail about how they were operating and and, uh, behaving in the area to a much greater extent than is likely without the license agreement. At the time of the meeting, Elwood also said Wind River Air would no longer have to keep a tracking device turned on during its scenic flights, meaning the airport would lose access to high-quality flight path and altitude data recorded from inside the chopper. But founder and pilot of the company, Tony Chambers, says the device isn't actually going anywhere. We talked in a phone interview in late May. That's a federal thing. That's a federal, their tower, they've got an antenna that reads that information. So, so they'll have, they, yeah, okay, so they'll have information to the, like, raw flight data, but now you don't have to necessarily tell them, oh, this was a scenic flight, like correct. on this day. There'll be, there'll be no more reporting to the airport. Okay. Do you expect this change to affect the business in any way? It won't affect my business. Not expecting any like change in customer numbers or anything like that? No. No. So what's behind Chambers' decision not to renew the license? He says it stems largely from the opposition he's faced from the Jackson Hole Conservation Alliance and the National Parks Conservation Association, which are running a heli no campaign to ban commercial helicopter tours over public lands in Jackson Hole. I knew that not everybody would be excited about helicopter scenic flights in the area. I, mean, I knew that would be the case, but I honestly thought there'd be 
there'd be just a little bit of give and take on, on everybody's end. And, and there really hasn't been much. Chambers says he was trying to go above and beyond to address concerns by holding a license agreement with the airport in 2020 and 2021. But he's been met with intense scrutiny from both the airport board and local community. Notably, a private citizen and former journalist named Joe Albright teamed up with an aviation GIS professor to analyze 57,000 lines of raw flight data from Wind River Air. Their analysis appears to document many instances of low-altitude flights over designated wilderness areas and Grand Teton National Park, much lower than the Federal Aviation Administration's 2,000-foot recommendation for flying above such noise-sensitive areas. Chambers was also not supposed to be flying scenic flights over the park at all, except for takeoffs and landing, according to his permit. They're taking the information that the airport garnishes, and I feel like they're twisting that information and they don't understand the information. And honestly, they don't have a desire to learn, you know, what the regulations are, what they mean, or what those flights mean. They, they don't have that. They just want to take that information, use it to batter me any way they can. Asked specifically about the alleged violations, Chambers says there have been numerous complaints filed against him with the FAA and that every time he's been cleared of any wrongdoing. Albright declined to do an interview for this story, but the FAA confirmed that its Denver Flight Standards District office is currently investigating the matter. That's where we are now, is basically pending this formal investigation. We're kind of trying to ramp up public outreach as much as we can in anticipation of this board meeting in the hopes that there might be potential for the airport to, pending the investigation, suspend the license until it's conclusive. Caroline Daly was, until recently, the public lands community organizer for the alliance working on the Halley No campaign. We spoke before that airport board meeting, the same one when Elwood announced that Wind River Air had decided itself not to renew the license. But now that it's clear that scenic flights can continue regardless, Interim Executive Director of the Alliance, Don Webster, acknowledged in a statement to KHOL that less airport oversight is a setback for the campaign. She also says the Alliance will, quote, continue to voice our community's concerns and that the fight is more than a local issue and about more than one operator. Here's Daly again. I think ultimately our hope is that there would be more stringent regulations and oversight, that the 2,000-foot overflight recommendation, there would be some sort of way to enforce that. And maybe there's a carrot, maybe there's a stick, but something there. The Alliance is also looking to other national park communities that have long struggled with an oversaturation of scenic flights. In Haleakala in Hawaii, they're seeing they're facing the same problem. They're much further down the road than we are, which is kind of, you know, we can hold them up as this is an example of what we don't want to do. But the FAA is working with the public in that community to figure out ways to better regulate those flights. So there is movement and there is hope there. Ultimately, though, there's a growing resignation among local advocates that it will likely take congressional action to strengthen regulations or downright ban scenic flights over public lands and national parks. Chambers says that's a goal his opponents are free to pursue. If these groups want to go for congressional legislation to change the laws, that's their prerogative. You know, that's our country. You're like, if we, have, we all have a right to do that sort of thing. In the meantime, Wind River Air will continue offering scenic helicopter flights in Jackson Hole. Kyle Mackey, KHOL News.
If you've been on Instagram in Jackson, you've likely seen some posts from your girl, Catherine. She's a satirical character poking fun at Teton County second homeowners, created by the local comedian, writer, and performer, Andrew Munns. Coming up next, KHOL Music and Community Affairs Director, Jack Catlin, interviews Munns about poking fun at Jackson culture and his experience being queer in Wyoming. Munns is also one of the organizers of JH Pride, which is hosting a series of Pride Month events this June. Director, writer, actor, playwright, and stand-up comedian Andrew Munns has been entertaining his hometown of Jackson for years. With numerous sold-out shows for previous productions like I Can Ski Forever and the most recent Homecoming Queen, Munns' projects are known for their biting satire, colorful characters unique to Jackson Hole, and exploration of queer life in the cowboy state. In advance of three sold-out shows at the Mangy Moose in Teton Village on June 2nd, 3rd, and 4th, Andrew Buns joins us now in the KHOL studios. Welcome. Thank you so much, Jack. Nice to be here. My pleasure. <laughs> so Jackson is a unique place in a variety of ways, which makes it susceptible to satire and or par- parody. Mm-hmm. Where do you primarily draw your inspiration from when focusing on Jackson? And what about the community here makes it so enjoyable to poke fun at? Well, uh, people take Jackson Hole so seriously. You know, they they p- people move here. They think it's this paradigm of Western hospitality living. You know, um, yes, it's this beautiful place. Yes, it you know has all of these opportunities and activities and sites and wildlife and and things. You know, and um, and for me, it was just my hometown. You know, I don't want to discount anybody's experience here, what they view this place as. But for myself, you know, I I just grew up here. My parents moved me here by accident. And I, you know, found my footing growing up gay in this place. And, uh, and I became very much an observer. And so when I saw that people treated my hometown as that place that everybody flocked to, um, it just, it made me really, I just found it so amusing. And so, uh, the fact that people take it so seriously and they have this kind of sanctimonious attitude about what it means to be a Jackson local and, um, how, how many years you've spent here and how many runs you've taken down the hobacks or whatever. Um, I, you know, I see all of that and I just laugh because like, for me, that's not what life is about. That's, you know, that's, that's a portion of life. And I'm sure, you know, it's, it's super fun to do it and to spend a winter skiing. And, but, you know, for me, there's, I, I just find interest in so many other different things. And so, uh, and so I've, I've learned that just by, uh, calling out some of these, uh, these elements of, of ski town living, um, you know, it, people certainly identify with it because I, I make these generalizations about wearing plaid or, you know, driving Subarus or all these things. And people are like, Oh my God, that's me. And so I've, I've absolutely taken advantage of that and charged people for it. So, uh, that has been my, my comedy. <laughs> I like to know, I'm sure many of listeners out there want to know where and when did the, your girl, Catherine character originate and how does her persona free you up? To try different things. <laughs> well, your girl Catherine started, you know, in the pandemic. It was uh, a just kind of funny idea that I had to portray this cougar who was quarantining in Jackson, and that really just kicked off into this whole new uh, persona that was a little bit I can ski forever. It was a little bit drag. It was kind of you know a very unambitious drag because all I do is put on a wig and sunglasses. And what's great about that character is that I can do so much and I can say so much about the community, you know, without any real repercussions, because it's not me, it's Catherine saying it. So if anybody has a problem, they just have to 
take it up with her. And uh, she doesn't respond to her DMs. So June 1st marks the first day of Pride Month 2022. Yes. You, you are a founding member and organizer of JH Pride, a collective of local LGBTQ community members and allies. How important is it to nurture and maintain that sense of community with JH Pride, especially in a seemingly underrepresented state like Wyoming? Yes. I mean, short answer, incredibly important. Um, you know, we, we look at Jackson as this kind of blue dot in a red state, but ultimately our foundation is red. Like it, that needs to be clear that we Jackson may be on its own little island in terms of like how it votes or how, you know, it, it, it treats its its local citizens. Um, but at the same time, we are still restricted by Wyoming laws and um, Wyoming representation, right? And or lack thereof. So thinking about pride itself, pride being, you know, June uh, as a, a result of and, and in recognition of the Stonewall riots in 1969, you know, pride itself is meant to be, you know, not just like this anti-straight or anti, you know, heteronormative, you know, concept. It's, it's meant to highlight and offer opportunity and community and networking and um, for queer individuals who who happen to live everywhere in the world. <laughs> um, and so being able to do pride in Jackson is is so important because we are we are a little bit, you know, isolated <laughs> from from metropolitan areas. And uh, and I'm so grateful because now it, it, it used to be just a, you know, very small uh, very small collective of people who are kind of putting their time and energy into this. And, you know, I'm so proud because this will be the first year that our mayor, um, our mayor will be uh, making a pride proclamation next Monday. This coverage is funded in part with an Arts for All grant provided by the town of Jackson and Teton County. Make sure to visit 891kjl.org for more music, news, and culture. I'm Jack Catlin, and this is KHOL. Jackson. Thanks so much, Andrew. Thank you, Jack. A full calendar of local Pride Month events is available at jhpride.com. You can also hear Cage Wells' full conversation with Munns on our website at 891khol.org. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL. I'm News Director Kyle Mackey, and this is our weekly podcast featuring reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop every Friday on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Next, a look behind the scenes of our new limited podcast series with Steo called Facets, Voices of the Mountain Life. In five episodes, Facets explores the passions, tensions, and healing that people find while living in a mountain town. The final episode about immigration is called Making Jackson Home, and it was reported and produced by me, with some help. I recently sat down with KHL Music and Community Affairs Director Jack Catlin to talk about the making of the episode. Facets is a new limited podcast series created by KHOL and the outdoor clothing company Steo that features stories told by original voices of the mountain life. The fifth and final episode, Making Jackson Home, debuted on Friday, May 27th. 
Four days a week, Rene de la Cruz drives a bus of mostly Latino students to a bilingual preschool. His route represents how a wave of immigration, primarily from Mexico, has transformed the workforce, schools, and broader community of Jackson Hole since the mid-1990s. Joining me right now in the KHOL studios is KHOL News Director Kyle Mackey, who reported and produced this episode. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us, Kyle. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me, Jack. So, Kyle, can you tell me about the inspiration for this story? As many people who are listening probably know, about 22% of Jackson's population identify as Hispanic or Latino. That's according to the most recent 2020 U.S. Census. But we know that's also likely an undercount. 30% is a number that you get heard more informally around town. So this is a significant part of the community. This long form project of facets really gave us an opportunity to share some voices, share some stories that frankly are undercovered in local media, undercovered and underrepresented too. So I understand the team did some Spanish language reporting for this episode. How did that all work? Yeah, this episode really took a village to report and produce. I'm not a Spanish speaker myself. We had two awesome freelancers who contributed reporting um, in Spanish for this episode. Natalie Shahar, who used to work in Mexico City, and Alicia Unger, who's originally from Mexico City. She's our Spanish language correspondent. They both did some awesome Spanish language reporting for this episode, did interviews in Spanish. And that's because that was the language that these folks were most comfortable speaking, right? We wanted people to be able to express themselves as, as fully as, as they could. And if Spanish was a language that needed to happen in, fantastic. Like we made it work. This episode had some great characters in it. Can you tell us about some of those folks? Yeah, of course. So the first one you mentioned who opens the episode is Rene de la Cruz. He's a bus driver for the Children's Learning Center here in town. I loved hearing his story. So grateful that Natalie Shahar was able to do this reporting with him. He just has created, seems to have created such a welcoming, friendly environment in his bus, you know, driving these little, little kids like to, to a bilingual preschool program every morning or four days a week. He's one of our main characters. Uh, he's a Mexican immigrant in his late 40s. And then we also hear from his wife, Miriam Morion, in this episode. Together, the two of them founded this group called Camina Conmigo, which is a hiking group for Latino adults. That was founded a couple of years ago out of sort of lack of an organization like that for Latino adults in the community. There are certainly lots of programs like Coombs Outdoors is the big one that people probably know of that specialize on youth access to outdoor recreation. And they serve a lot of Latino families, teaching kids to do everything from like skiing to rock climbing and hiking, et cetera. Renee and Miriam started this hiking group for adults to help, you know, their parents also get outside, too. And then um, one of the other main voices, and I'm going to have to leave some people out, but we also hear from Marcela Bedillo in this episode. She's also a Mexican immigrant. Um, she's from Tlaxcala, which is the state where many of Jackson's Latino community trace their roots. And she's lived in Jackson for about 20 years, came here when she was 17. And uh, she has a really powerful story and is now a community organizer with this nonprofit called Voices JH. She's also a member of Jackson's new equity task force. So this episode spans the period from about the mid-1990s when many Mexicans started coming into the Jackson area for seasonal work up to the present day. Can you talk about the evolution of Jackson's Latino community during that time and the challenges faced then versus now? I'm super grateful for this opportunity through this reporting to, to learn about this history. And I'll also say I'm not a member of this community and um, it was a privilege to do these interviews, do this research, but people can also go kind of directly to the source. And I encourage anybody who's listening, who wants to learn more, you know, 
go to these organizations like 122 Resource Center, like Voices JH. Um, there are so many organizations that are really serving this community, have bilingual staff, et cetera. But one thing we do kind of track in this episode is this growing shift in civic and political power. Um, and that's something that author Justin Farrell also talked about in his 2020 book, Billionaire Wilderness. We have him read um, a couple passages from the book in this episode, actually. You know, it's just kind of this notion that, you know, Jackson today is not the same town it was in the mid-1990s. There's more resources, uh, more engagement with the Latino community really than ever before. It can always still be better, of course. There can be more integration. There's still a lot of segregation, as we know. But this growing shift in political power, you know, it looks like a lot of different things. We talk about how it looks like immigrants, you know, starting and operating successful businesses in Jackson Hole and helping to run some of the, you know, richest nonprofits in the world that are based here in Jackson and um, serving on on the new equity task force, which Marcella, who's in the episode, she's she's a member of that new task force. And then we talk about, too, like a very Jackson way by getting into outdoor recreation, like, you know, some of these immigrants who are from places where maybe like winter sports weren't possible in their home countries and looking at like, you know, Renee and Miriam starting Camina Comigo and this hiking group. It's a very like Jackson way, but it's a big way of like belonging here and feeling like part of this community. Well, thank you so much, Kyle, and for all you do here at KHOL. Again, you can listen to Facets on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We now have all five episodes of the series available. I'm Jack Catlin, and this is KHOL Jackson. Now for the weekly news roundup. Here are the headlines you might have missed this past week. A woman who approached a bison in Yellowstone National Park Monday was gored and sent to the hospital. The 25-year-old was within 10 feet of the animal at Black Sand Basin, according to the park, and was flung 10 feet into the air, sustaining a puncture wound and other injuries. This is the first incident of a bison goring this season, and park officials are reminding folks that the ungulate is very dangerous when approached and can run three times faster than humans. The woman was immediately transferred following the incident to Eastern Idaho Regional Medical Center, where she survived. The Jackson Town Council is scheduled to consider changing the rules for short-term rentals outside of the lodging overlays in June. The change would extend the current 30-day minimum in residential neighborhoods to 90 days, meaning that homeowners in those areas could only rent four times a year instead of 12. Advocates for affordable housing, like coordinator of the group Shelter JH, Claire Stumpf, say the move will help unlock existing homes for local workers, and that it's a step in the right direction towards easing Jackson's housing crisis. But there are also worries about potential backlash. When I've been having conversations about it recently, um, there's concerns that if if the minimum rental length is extended, even with a local option to you know provide some exemptions for lo- for owner occupied homes of locals who need to help offset their mortgages, etc., that folks could go down to Cheyenne and overrule that. As it turns out, that's exactly what at least one member of the town council is expecting. Jackson Vice Mayor Arne Jorgensen responded to Stump's comments during an informal chat with town council members event last week. 
so it's, it's, it's a really fascinating question. And, and, it, and it's something that I don't want to paralyze ourselves to not take action because we're afraid of what Cheyenne does, right? It's important for us to do what we feel like we need to do. We need to do it being aware of what we might be generating. In this case, Jorgensen says he's heard that some local homeowners are already organizing to oppose the rule change. Opponents say they're following the current rules and shouldn't be punished for seeking extra revenue to help pay for their mortgages and escalating property taxes. The Jackson Hole Travel and Tourism Board is continuing to gather feedback from Teton County residents for its Sustainable Destination Management Plan. Anecdotal evidence of locals feeling the area has gotten overcrowded and overvisited to the point where some negative side effects are occurring has been persistent for several years. However, a new study featuring 4,700 people from the region sheds new light on this sentiment. 56% of respondents feel the drawbacks of Jackson's tourism industry outweigh the benefits, compared to just 26% feeling the opposite and 18% remaining neutral. Industry expert Solani Matus from George Washington University, who helped orchestrate the survey, says that low satisfaction rate with visitors is more common if you're an older, long-time local. So this was a, a general sort of uh, tendency that we observed. The more years that residents have been here, um, the, the uh, less sort of positive their outlook was about tourism in terms of you know, the benefits uh, being had. Public comments discussing these results are still being taken through June 15th, and the next steps after this are recommended actions for elected officials to take to try and better manage Jackson Hole tourism. U.S. land managers have given a utility company final permissions to build a massive energy transmission line from southeastern Wyoming to Utah, according to the nonprofit publication Wildfile. The 416-mile line will better connect renewable energy farms in the Cowboy State with the rest of the West and is a critical piece of infrastructure as developers look to double Wyoming's wind capacity. The decision matches the Biden administration's efforts to accelerate the transition from fossil fuels to green energy in rural America. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm discussed why that's such a priority during a trip to Arizona last week. You want these young people not to have to go to these big cities. You want you were born here. You were raised here. You want to make sure that you have community and opportunity. Developers are poised to make wind the top source of electricity generation in Wyoming with this new pipeline, eventually replacing coal as power plants and mines are decommissioned. Constructions of these pipelines could begin as soon as next year. That's it for today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is by the local band Strumbucket. You can help us spread the word about Jackson Unpacked by leaving a rating and review for the show in Apple Podcasts. I'm Kyle Mackey, and this is KJOL Jackson. Jackson.